All right. Well, we are uh, going to take a little bit of a, I wouldn't say a detour, but we're just going to sort of um, take a little bit of a side road, if you will, uh, to talk more specifically about this principle or this concept of walking with God. Of course, we were introduced to that principle or that concept in our study and the genealogies that we looked at in Genesis chapter 5. When you come to that place in verse 21 of Genesis chapter 5, where you see uh, Enoch introduced to us. And of course, we talked about how that in, in that particular chapter, in that particular string of genealogy or genealogical information, this these verses that focus on Enoch represent a real break in the flow of the narrative, a real sort of emphasis, if you will, in uh, the narrative flow there, um, and for, for good reason. And let me just read the verses to you in Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, to kind of set this uh, context in our minds as we get into our study today. It says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. And of course, as that the rest of the narrative around that flows out, what you see is you see uh, men being referenced, uh, their lives, the length of their days being numbered, them having a particular son that's named, having other sons and daughters, and living another number of days, and then they die. And then you get to Enoch, and you see this, this twice-mentioned uh, reference to his character, or what was unique about him, in that he walked with God. And at the end of his days, he did not die, but he was taken. Uh, God just took him and uh, allowed him to avoid any pain or misery that might be associated with an actual physical death. And so we see this man being highlighted as one who walks with God. Edward Griffin, a Puritan pastor during the Second Great Awakening in America, a man who studied under Jonathan Edwards at Yale University, said this. He says, We have many strong featured characters drawn in history. Some shine in all the brilliancy of material achievements and are renowned for their conquest of kingdoms. Others have gathered laurels in the paths of science and illumined the world with the flashes of their genius. Others, by their counsels, have swayed the fate of empires, and the deeds of these have been loudly sounded by the trumpet of fame. But more is said in praise of this man of God in the few short words of our text than is said of them all. A greater character is given him in four words than is ascribed to the most renowned warriors and statesmen by the whole voice of history and poetry. Pretty, pretty ringing uh, endorsement of this man, Enoch, and, and how God commended him as a man who walked with him. Of course, we have the same reference uh, to Noah in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So we have in, in Genesis chapter 5 and then right after that in Genesis chapter 6 these references to this walk with God. And so I thought it might be uh, fruitful for us to spend a little bit of time today just discussing this concept, this principle, this discipline, um, this purposefulness of having a walk with God. Um, let, let's discuss it, but let's, let's talk about it. Like what does it mean? What does it mean to walk with God? How does one engage in such a walk with God? Um, you know, the question comes to mind, is this a physical walk? 
Or is it some kind of mystical walk? Um, You'll have all kinds of concepts that might be brought to bear in this kind of discussion, uh, certainly in the secular world, but also within the context of various Christian communities or people who would profess faith in Christ. Uh, I'll give you maybe the more extreme example just to kind of set out uh, some context against which we will speak about this walk. But you can find this information if you're interested. Uh, It's from Spirit Walk Ministry. So if you're interested in that, you can Google that. This is an informational ministry emphasizing spiritual awakening through your own personal existential experiences. So a spirit walk is when you heed the calling of your spirit, journeying where your spirit leads you so that you may experience that which you need to experience in order to fully realize your reason for being here at this time and at this place. A spirit walk is living not from ego, but from complete being. Is it, is it getting clear now? Let's make sure. We're moving forward. It requires that you be totally present and totally accepting so that old habits and ideas do not continue to foster the illusions that have led you away from your true path. Your spirit walk is a rite of passage and a pilgrimage from one state of being to another. It is the only sure path to reawakening the power that you came here with. While it may involve a journey from what you have come to think as home, it is also a returning home to the spiritual center that you wandered from this course of living. A spirit walk is not a linear journey. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. And there are certainly concepts of a spiritual walk that are flung far afield from the truths of Scripture. But there are even concepts of walking with God that can be overly mystical even within the context of the Christian community. So I really think it's important that we talk about this and we have an understanding of what it means and what Scripture really teaches about walking with God. It is a spiritual walk. Why why is it necessarily a spiritual walk? Ring-a-ding-ding, right? I mean, God is spirit. I mean, But the thing that I think is most important here is the concept that there was communication between God and whoever it's referring to. That's right. There, we're going to talk about the elements of this in more detail. But we do have to acknowledge that there is a spiritual element to this walk. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship, worship him in spirit and in truth. So there's an element of spirituality here, but I don't want it to be confused with mysticism in this walk. There's some very practical ways that we walk with God as well, and some of it does involve, obviously, communication, which we'll talk about. I think it might be helpful for us to just start by observing this imagery of walking. I mean, the, the term walk with God is the is the... The nature of the, the description is it's this metaphor, this image that's given to us. What, what does it mean to literally walk with another person? And I think that there are some explicit requirements that you have to acknowledge and observe. And then there are also some implicit or some implied expectations for us to literally walk with another person. For example, let's think about some explicit requirements, some explicit necessities to walk with someone. First of all, there has to be physical presence. You have to be together in the same place physically to walk with someone, right? You've got to start there. I, I mean, I know that you could say, well, what if we're Skyping or something like that? Are we, 
I'm talking about an actual physical walk, right? So you have to have physical presence with one another. You must be together to walk together. You have to have freedom of movement. In other words, there cannot be any physical constraints or barriers that would prevent you from walking together. So you could both be together, but you could be in chains and you couldn't walk together. Make sense? Again, I'm being very literal and explicit here. Uh, You have to have some directional agreement. I mean, if you decide, let's go for a walk, and one person walks this way and another person walks that way, it, it doesn't take long for you not to be walking together, right? Directional agreement. Two people must agree to walk in the same direction in order to walk together. There has to be mutual physical movement. Both parties must move together at a mutual pace in order to walk together. So in other words... You can start walking together physically. You can be physically present with one another. You can agree we're going to walk in this direction. But if one person says, I'm going to walk this fast, all of a sudden you may be going in the same direction and you may be still somewhat physically present, but you're no longer walking together. So there has to be some mutual physical movement. Both parties must move together at a mutual pace. And that's just some. I mean, those are, we could come up with a list of other sort of necessities to be able to actually literally walk together with someone. But there are also, I think, some implicit expectations that you could identify. For example, there has to be a desire to walk together. I mean, you have to decide you want to walk together. There's, a, there's, this, there's, this, there's an implied interest in the walk. There is an expectation of relationship. There's an implied intimacy when you think of two people walking together, right? I mean, you don't just decide to go for a walk together with someone without the assumption. In other words, I, I would doubt that it's common for people to walk up to strangers and say, hey, let's go for a walk, right? There's an implied relationship. There's an implied intimacy there. There is engagement. There's the implication, at least, of some form of fellowship. I mean, I, I'm certain that people could go for a walk and they could walk in complete silence and not speak to one another, but there's this expectation of, of communication, of engagement with one another in some degree. Otherwise, why are you walking together? Just go for a walk on your own. And then there's the implication of effort. There's an implied commitment to this walk. I mean, think about that for a second. And especially, I think about this in our modern culture. Um, it is very difficult for human beings in the smartphone, 24-7 connected culture that we live in to just share space and fellowship together without the interruption of a device, either by virtue of checking the device or it buzzing and grabbing your attention and you feeling the need to check the device or whatever it might be. We also live in a culture where if, unless, you're, unless you're living in a more you know, rural setting, there are distractions all around us. We were just talking a second ago about finding a place to go have lunch at some point in the future, and the, the question was, where can we go and find a place where there's not a lot of distractions so you can have a conversation? I mean, it's difficult to, to actually walk together in some form of fellowship or relationship, both physically, you have to have the right physical 
requirements in place, but there's also a need for desire, relationship, engagement, and this thing called effort. You have to try. And I think that that kind of gives us at least some elements of this picture of a walk with God. Um, in fact, I, I really I read several um, sermons and, and various writings on this passage as well as just the whole principle of walking with God. And I think I, I liked uh, George Whitfield's um, sermon on walking with God. Many of you probably know George Whitfield, an English Anglican cleric who helped really, um, was, was a key figure in the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening in Britain and especially in the American colonies. Very famous in his time, probably the most famous religious figure of the 18th century. Um, newspaper articles would, would attest to that from that day and time. But anyway, George Whitfield, a very uh, gifted preacher, orator, um, contemporary of Jonathan Edwards as well. But he, he wrote a sermon called Walking with God, and it was actually uh, springing from this passage in Genesis about Enoch. And I, there's a, there was a summary of this sermon that I, I found. It's, it kind of summarizes or encapsulates some of the main points. And I just want to kind of walk through that sum with you. And, and, and you'll, you're probably already thinking of various passages of Scripture that, that speak to this principle of walking with God in relationship and in fellowship. And this sermon actually draws many of them out. But I would welcome your, your feedback on that as well. But he, he starts with this question, what does it mean to walk with God? Same kind of question we're asking. It means several things. First, that the prevailing power of enmity in a person's heart has been taken away by the blessed Spirit of God. In other words, you go back to some of these physical requirements and you know, explicit requirements for walking together, and then some implicit requirements. Well, you look at this, and you're saying, in order for someone to walk with God, the enmity that is inherent in fallen man has to be removed first. It's a requirement. It has to be in place. Secondly, that the person has actually been reconciled to God the Father, which, of course, is part of that salvation process, that transaction of redeeming a lost soul, that the enmity is removed and then they're reconciled to God. And then thirdly, that the person has an abiding communion and fellowship with God. What scripture is what in Scripture is called the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And then finally, walking with God implies our making progress, moving forward, moving in a direction making progress in the divine life. Walking requires a progressive motion. And then he goes on to ask this question, but how? How does one walk with God? And I like the way these these points and these passages kind of coalesce around these points that he makes in this sermon. And I think that, that this really gives us a helpful framework for us as we think about our walk with God and, and what it should look like and how it should be characterized and the elements of this walk with God that we should be constantly cultivating, constantly cultivating in our hearts and our minds. And again, this is Spiritual Disciplines Christian Growth 101. So if any of you think that you're kind of above Spiritual Disciplines Christian Growth 101, you're free to leave the room, but I will come and find you and rebuke you afterwards because we all need to be reminded of what the fundamentals and the basics of the Christian life, right? We need to be constantly reminded of these things. So simply put, He starts by saying, step one, read the scriptures. Read the scriptures. May I interject something here? As you probably know, 
fewer words than we have in our English language, the fraction. And almost any Hebrew word that you choose has several English translations, any one or all of which could be correct. I would think that in a case like this, it would be interesting to go back and see what the original Hebrew word was, what was the root of the word. And it, the translation really depends on the scribe that originally translated the Bible from the Hebrew into English. Are you talking about the, the, the translation of the word walk? Yeah, walk with. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in, even in English, we have many different concepts. You just expressed several of right, them. Right, right. And it would be interesting to know which, or perhaps do all of those apply to that one Hebrew word? Yeah. I, I've not done that kind of study, actually, on that particular word, but it would be interesting to see how, it, how that plays out. You physical, and yet God is a spirit. And so my walk with God is his spirit and my physical and my spirit. So it's really... Yeah, but don't you think when Adam walked with God in the garden, he saw something? He certainly heard. Again, I mean, we don't, we don't have specifics on that. You can, get, you can speculate, but um, on, in terms of what actually happened in the garden or what that presence experience was like. You know, we have other images, obviously, in the New Testament of God speaking and speaking from a cloud or from a pillar of fire, obviously like that, so in dreams and visions and so forth. Of course, the most vivid revelation of God is in Christ, right? So we have that in the, in the New Testament, um, in the Gospels in particular. And so, I, I, but I do think that when you look at the concept of a walk with God, it's really a talking about a, a living, abiding in, walking with, the, the, the full dynamic of that. And there's physical and there's spiritual. Well, there's certainly agreement. You can't walk with someone without agreement. Of course. Well, we've walked along so, and argued many a time. <laughs> you know what? We might actually set aside an entire lesson to hear more of that. That could be probably pretty interesting and fascinating to hear. I, in fact, I'd probably have a bunch of questions I'd want to ask. Right. But for us, if we bring it into our day and time, we have the scriptures. And so for us, communication from God in its most explicit sense is reading the scriptures. So if we're walking together with God, um, it, in the New Testament, it refers to the walk, the Christian walk, which is really establishing uh, our obedience to God. Right. It's, it's all of that. That's right. That's right. And how do we do that? We have to know what God is like. We obey what he says. So we read the scriptures. He says, Jonathan, uh, excuse me, uh, Whitfield says, to begin with, believers maintain their walk with God by reading his word. Search the scriptures, says our blessed Lord, for these are they that testify of me. The psalmist tells us that God's word is a light unto his feet and a lantern unto his paths. The characteristic of a good man that his delight is in the law of the Lord and that in his law he meditates day and night. Give yourself to the public reading of Scripture, says Paul to Timothy. 
This book of the law, says God to Joshua, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, Romans 15.4. The word of God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3.16. If we ever think we are above our Bibles, we shall soon lie open to all manner of delusion and be in great danger of making shipwreck of the faith and a good conscience. This the Apostle Paul calls the sword of the Spirit. So this walk with God, we have to know who God is, we have to know what God is like, we have to know what His demands of us are, and that begins with an understanding of what He has said and what He has commanded and how He has revealed His character and His nature, and we understand that clearly through the Scriptures. And then secondly, He refers to personal prayer. So again, the basics of spiritual disciplines, personal prayer. Believers keep up their walk with God by private personal prayer. The spirit of grace is always accompanied with the spirit of supplication. It is the very breath of the new creature, the fan of the divine life. By it, the spark of holy fire kindled in the soul by God is not only kept in, but raised into a new flame. Neglect of private prayer has been frequently an inlet to many spiritual diseases and has been attended with fatal consequences. Prayer is one of the most notable parts of the believer's spiritual armor. Pray at all times in the Spirit, Ephesians 6.18. Pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, Matthew 26.41. Prayer brings and keeps God and man together. It raises man up to God and brings God down to man. Even when you are about the common business of life, be much in extemporaneous prayer. So that communication and that fellowship, that constant intercession and supplication with our God is part of that walk. And again, you start thinking about the nature of a walk with someone. It makes sense. It just, it just fits. The next one he mentions is, is meditation. In this walk with God, meditation. Holy and frequent meditation is another blessed means of keeping up a believer's walk with God. Says Luther, prayer, reading, temptation, and meditation makes a minister, and they also make a perfect, make and perfect a Christian. Meditation is to the soul what digestion is to the body. David found it so, and therefore he was frequently employed in meditation, even in the night season. Meditation is a kind of silent prayer whereby the soul is frequently carried out of itself to God. Through meditation, the soul is, to a degree, beholds the face of our Heavenly Father. None but those happy souls that have been accustomed to this divine practice can tell what a blessed promoter of the divine life meditation is. While I was musing, the fire burned, writes David, Psalm 39.3. And while the believer is musing on the works and word of God, he frequently feels the fire of divine love kindled so that he is obliged to speak with his tongue and tell of the loving kindness of the Lord to his soul. Be frequent, therefore, in meditation, all you who desire to maintain a close and uniform walk with the Most High God. This whole principle, this whole discipline of meditation upon God's Word is a very, um, I think, I don't know if you, a lost discipline, I would say, um, in spiritual living. Um, We have become pragmatists, too often, and we are too busy to stop and be still and know that He is God. We, are, we, we, we meditate on things all the time, 
we're just not diligent about the practice, about the set-aside time of meditation upon the truths and works and character of God. And you cannot, and I cannot, have a consistent, sustained walk with God if I'm not one who meditates upon his word. Just like the psalmist says, Psalm 1 is, is my favorite of the psalms. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in all he does he prospers. This principle of meditation is so crucial. And like I said before, we live in such a distracted, distractible culture that meditation is a difficult discipline for us to practice consistently. We're so busy, and yet God calls us to step away, be still, be quiet. Like Jesus said, watch and pray. And that is a critical part of spiritual life. In fact, I would say that anyone that you know, any, any, any relationship that you have in your life with anyone who you would look to and say they are a deeply devoted follower of Christ, a deeply spiritual person, someone who is consistently wise and whose life reflects the grace of God on a consistent basis, I can assure you they are a person of prayer and they're a person of meditation on God's word because their minds are saturated with the truths of God's word. And that's how that, that's one of the ways that that actually happens. But, but it requires obedience to that communication. Uh, that's step six. I'm not there yet. Oh. Yes, I'm getting there. Okay. Because you can listen all you want and then not do it. That's right. So step four, step six, just hold on. Step four, noting God's providence. Noting God's providence is another step in walking with God. Believers keep up their walk with God also by watching and noting His providential dealings with them. If we believe the Scriptures, we must believe what our Lord hath declared therein, that the very hairs of His disciples' heads are numbered, and that a sparrow does not fall to the ground without the knowledge of our Heavenly Father, Matthew 10, 29. Every cross has a call in it, and every particular dispensation of divine providence has some particular end to answer in those to whom it is sent. Seek to know what God is saying to you. A little hint from providence, says pious Bishop Hall, is enough for faith to feed upon. In other words, God does work through providence. The combination of a life of prayer, a life of studying the scriptures, a life of meditation upon the scriptures, and then as you go and as you walk and as you live this life and as you encounter people and have relationships and are having to make decisions, there is a need for us, if we are to be walking with God, to be paying attention to the providential ways that God is at work all around us and to, and to be discerning about what walking faithfully in those ways would look like. So paying attention to God's providence is key. And is it, not, is it not common for us to not even be thinking about the providence of God in all the matters of our lives? Especially when we think that we're being inconvenienced in some way, right? If there's traffic or you know, something doesn't go right when you're trying to get out of the house in a hurry or, or whatever it might be, there's something getting in the way, your kids are doing something to distract you from what you're... I mean, we are not disciplined 
consistently at paying attention to the providence of God in all things. Now, if we were to have a theological discussion, do we believe that God is in control of all things, that he declares the end from the beginning? Oh, amen, amen. But do not let my son come and distract me from trying to get ready to teach on Sunday morning. Don't let that happen. Interesting, isn't it? But a walk with God is a walk that pays attention to providence, recognizes God's providential dealings in all the affairs of our lives, and is sensitive to it. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say, and I'm going to give myself a little bit of an out, if my son has been told not to interrupt me and he comes, then that becomes an opportunity for me to discipline him, which, you know, I'm going to do it. But, <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is that anytime we're inconvenienced or, or things we feel like are getting in our way, we're usually not thinking the doctrine of God's providence, right? Satan. Yeah, that's right. Why is Satan doing these things to me? That's right. That's right. Yep. Step five, he says, to seek the guidance of the Spirit. He says, in order to walk closely with God, his children must not only watch the motions of God's providence around them, but they must also take note of the moving of his blessed Spirit within their hearts. As many are the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God, Romans eight fourteen. They give up themselves to be guided by the Holy Spirit just as a little child gives its hand to be led by a nurse or a parent. However, it is the quiescence of enthusiasm to pretend to be guided by the Spirit without the written word. It is every Christian's bound duty to be guided by the Spirit in conjunction with the written word of God. You must always test the suggestions or impressions that you may at any time feel by the unerring rule of God's holy word, And if they are not found to be agreeable to that, reject them as diabolical and delusive. So again, a call for discernment around the authority of God's word, but certainly we are prompted by the Spirit of God who is alive in every believer. Galatians 5 kind of puts it this way when you think about this walk with God. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. So again, this principle of walking with God, walking in the Spirit. And as that walk moves forward, it produces the fruit of the Spirit. And as our walk is producing something other than that fruit, we know that we are not walking in the Spirit. We must walk in the Spirit and pay attention to the promptings of the Spirit and test them against the truths of Scripture. Step six, obedience. We have arrived. Those who would maintain a holy walk with God must walk with Him in His commandments as well as in His providences. It is recorded of Zacharias and Elizabeth that they walked in all God's ordinance, as well as His commandments blameless. 
All rightly informed Christians will look upon commandments not as beggarly elements, but as so many conduit pipes by which the infinitely condescending Jehovah conveys His grace to their souls. They will look upon them as children's bread and as their highest privileges. Consequently, they will delight to visit the place where God's honor dwells. Come, let us go up to the house of the Lord, Psalm 122.1. So again, walking with God, as has already been alluded to, is a walk that is in accordance with obeying His commands. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what? Obey my commands. So this idea, even these ideas of love and over-emotionalizing or sentimentalizing or spiritualizing principles or concepts like love are contrary to Scripture and to the words of Christ Himself. This is what love looks like, that you're willing to lay down your life for your friends. Lay down your life for your brother, John says. So even even these ideas of, of demonstrating love, which is often put into an emotional or sort of ethereal realm by many, is characterized in Scripture by things like obedience to the commands of God, to the commands of Christ, faithfulness to the Word of God and being willing to sacrifice on behalf of others. We need to be obedient if we were to walk with God. And this is where you get into the actual, more physical, tangible elements of a walk with God. I mean, you think about actual physical walking. I described some of those earlier on. Walking with God simply might mean at any given moment that you don't feel particularly spiritually close to God, but you're called to just obey what you know He's commanded you to do and thus you are walking with God. And I think that is one of the dangers that we have in our spiritual lives. Many people who don't feel, feel a closeness to God don't believe that they are actually walking with God. They, 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 it, it disrupts their sense of affirmation of God's fellowship with them or something. And so they're, they're reliant upon a certain feeling of closeness in the presence of God, a certain spiritual or emotional feeling, and yet clearly we can walk with God by simply knowing what he's called us to do and doing it in faithfulness and obedience and trusting that God will cultivate in us the joy and the delight of obedience that comes along with it. We we wrestle with our flesh and we wrestle with our sin And so sometimes we are not going to feel close to God, but we still are called to walk in obedience and thereby demonstrate a walk with him. Were you going to say something? No? Okay. And then the seventh step, this is the last one that he mentions. He says, uh, godly association is the seventh step to walking with God. Finally, if you would walk with God, you will associate and keep company with others who walk with him. Makes practical sense, right? My delight, says David, is in them that do excel in virtue, Psalm 16.3. In his sight, they were the excellent ones of the earth. The early Christians kept up their vigor and first love by continuing in fellowship with one another. Writes Paul, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, Hebrews 10.25. He attributes Hebrews to Paul, which I don't believe is accurate. But For how can one be warm alone? Did not the wisest of men say, as iron sharpens iron, so does the countenance of man sharpen his friend? So it is necessary for those who would walk with God to meet together when they can in order to provoke one another to love and good works. You know, there are many people that believe that you can be just as spiritual and just as godly and have just a closer walk with God and never associate with the people of God. 
There, there are actually people who would write in that way and defend that particular principle. But that is not how God has designed a walk with him. He has designed us to walk in fellowship with one another. He has designed us to be accountable to one another. He has put us in the body of Christ so that the gifts that he's given us might be used to edify the body. He has, he has put together his church to be a collective group of worshipers, of those who worship him in spirit and truth, and hold up the name of Christ in a community together. And so this idea of having this very personal, very private walk with God that is not connected or associated with a body of believers, a group, a collection of saints who are seeking to do the same thing, faithfully walk with God, is not a characteristic of a true walk with God. Now, there may be times where providence requires an isolated walk with God. I'm not talking about those kinds of things. I mean, if you get, if you're on the mission field in some foreign country or you're whatever, you're, you're, you're isolated in some way, then... Well, he was, yeah, he was isolated just by virtue of the culture around him, right? So we may find ourselves isolated by, in, in the providential will of God, and I'm not saying that that's not possible. And it's not, I'm not saying it's not possible to not walk faithfully with God apart from routine, regular fellowship with God's people. What I'm speaking about is a willful resistance to readily available fellowship and accountability and mutual service amongst God's people. We are called to walk with God with his people, not in isolation and not separated. So those are the seven sort of steps that Whitfield gives for walking with God, and I felt that those were pretty clear and pretty straightforward and, and particularly helpful. There was one other passage um, that I thought was interesting to, to, to highlight, and it's from 1 Peter 2.21. And again, the context of 1 Peter is really um, suffering. It's, it's how to live godly in a world of haters, how to walk in faithfulness in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in the midst of persecution, looming persecution of God's people under the rule of Nero is really the context of 1 Peter. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You might walk with Christ. And the context here is walking in suffering. Now, how, how easy is it for believers to view suffering as something as really more exclusively confined to some form of judgment or or purely chastisement of God or that it's it's evident of God's not God's blessing but some displeasure with God and yet if we are to walk with Christ if we are to walk in his steps in the way that he walked uh, we will walk a life of suffering we will, we will walk a path of persecution. Walking with God means walking in persecution, walking in suffering. It's a very important principle for us to, to remember as we consider our walk. Another good verse, verse John 2, 6, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Well, There's many other passages of Scripture that we could allude to. I would summarize by the one that maybe many of you had already thought of. Um, When you think of walking with God, and it's Micah 6.8. It 
And I, and I love the, the passage itself, the succinctness of the passage, but I also like the, the context in which it sits. Um, Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Of course, the context there is judgment of God's people. And there is this refrain that comes before that of, should we bring these sacrifices? Should we sacrifice our own children to demonstrate our love for you? And he's saying, here's what the Lord requires of you. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Now, one more last question. Obvious question. Easy, easy one. Why is humility absolutely essential and necessary to have a walk with, walk with God? What does God do to the proud? Opposes the proud, right? Rejects the proud. Well, yeah, humility. I mean, that's, that's the rightful position that we stand in before a holy God who is altogether other. But then there's the explicit warning, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so this admonition, this, this challenge, this really this rebuke in Micah 6 to the to God's people is that we are to walk humbly with our God. And it involves doing justice. It involves doing things. There's a physical element to this walk. It involves spiritual things and spiritual realities and implied realities like loving kindness, loving the things that God loves, and in doing so, walking humbly with our God. So God, help us to be faithful in this walk. Any final closing thoughts before we pray and are dismissed? Okay, let's pray.